Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. Today's conversation is with Bob Owen, a tech-savvy veteran litigator and partner at top law firm Evershed Sutherland. Bob gained an appreciation for technology, working with early punch card computers as an engineering student at Northwestern University in 1966. He first started as a litigator at the law firm Sullivan and Cromwell in New York in the early 1970s. In this episode, Bob talks about the ambitious mandate his firm's global co-chair of litigation provided him, namely to achieve, quote, legal tech supremacy at Evershed's in two years. Bob shares details on how he's meeting this goal, what pain points he's solving for at the firm, and how he views this as a golden age in legal technology. Bob also shares insights gained from his decades of experience in litigation, including his criticism of overblown e-discovery and the, quote, litigation industry, client-facing technology, as opposed to purely internal technology, remote work, and the rise of the sophisticated and sometimes skeptical large company client. We hope you enjoy our conversation, and as always, if you like what you hear, please rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Bob, thanks so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you, Anand. It's a pleasure to be here. I am uh, delighted to uh, have the uh, ability to talk to you during this time, and I look forward to it. So, Bob, one of the reasons that we uh, are having you on this podcast is you've got a uh, an extremely impressive uh, uh, you know history in working in the law. Uh, you are a partner, as our listeners know, uh, at, at the firm Evershed Sutherland. And I'd love for you to give our listeners a introduction as to, you know, where where Bob Owen started out and and what you are doing right now. I'd love for you to work us through. Um, and uh, I'll just note for our listeners, there's a lot of fascinating stories here. And I'd love for you to kind of walk us through some of those. Well, starting at the end, I've been a litigator since 1973, I uh, spent 46 years in New York doing commercial litigation, uh, first at the firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, and then my own firm for 20 years, called Owen and Davis. And then I uh, joined Fulbright and Jaworski in 2002 and Evershed, which was then called Southern and Asheville and Brennan in 2011. But my story starts in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm a Midwestern kid. I grew up in St. Louis. Um, I, I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, and I had an appointment to the Air Force Academy, but my left eye tested 2025 on the day of my physical, and back in 1966, uh, that meant I wouldn't be flying jets, and I said to myself, hmm, no jets, no girls, I think I'm going to go to Northwestern. So I went to Northwestern, I became an engineering student, I was writing uh, code, Fortran was the language back then in 1966 using punch cards. And um, I didn't really make it as a as an engineer, and it was a very political time. I thought I wanted to be president of the United States, so I switched to uh, a political science in my junior year, and uh, then I decided I would go off to law school. My summer job in 1969, which was when I was a rising senior, was to run the remote terminal of the Northwestern mainframe in the basement of Fisk Hall, which basically meant I ran punch cards through the card reader and I handed the printouts to the grad students uh, when the program had run. But um, it was it was an interesting time. The rest of my generation was wrestling in the mud at Woodstock, and I was in the basement of Fisk called uh, wrestling with uh, punch cards. But I went off to law school. I joined Sullivan and Cromwell, became a litigator, um, and I always liked computers. Uh, and in 1979, the firm got from Wang Laboratories Wang's first major. Uh, litigation as a company. Those of you who are of a certain age will remember that Wang owned the American desktop in the 1970s and 1980s, and they'd been sued, and I got involved with them as an associate. 
Um, I left Sullivan in nine, 1981, and I took that case with me, and it developed into a wonderful relationship. I ended up doing 50 cases for Wang. I litigated uh, computer performance cases to New York City juries, and um, I really had a fascinating experience. But at that time, I was in my own firm. I functioned as my own firm's uh, you know, chief uh, technology officer. I read PC Magazine for fun and uh, chose the technology, learned it, trained the employees, and it was just a, it was a great time. But uh, in 2002, when the e-discovery wave crashed over all of our heads, I was at uh, Fulbright, and uh, I happened to be a 50-something litigator that knew computers. So I was a natural choice to become involved with the drafting of litigation hold procedures and e-discovery manuals for global corporations, which I did. And uh, one thing led to another. Uh, I'm now a Chambers Band 1 ranked in e-discovery in the United States and globally. I'm president of the Electronic Discovery Institute. We have a wonderful conference every fall. Uh, involving 300 people from around the country. We're, we educate 50 judges at our own expense in the e-discovery developments. Um, and uh, it's really become a wonderful subspecialty of my litigation practice. Bob, I really appreciate that introduction. Uh, I think our listeners will see how broad-based uh, and deep your experiences with both technology, but also on the litigation side of things. And, and we're going to get into uh, some topics on e-discovery, pre-trial exchange of, of, uh, of discovery and documents, and a lot of that kind of meteor, meteor stuff. But I want to start out just by asking you, um, how you think your background in computer science, dating all the way back to 1966 at Northwestern in Fisk Hall, um, you know, before you transitioned over to political science as a, as a, a major, how that affected you? I mean, it seems like you are a, a tech leader at your current firm, Evershed Sutherland, but you know, you this all started and this maybe all grew out of your uh, your experience working with early early tech and early early coding in the form of punch cards in a, in a early computer in, in 1966, how, you know, talk us through how, how that impacted you. Well, um, I think the, the, the main effect that those times had, uh, is that they developed a real love for computers, a real fascination with their power and, um, and a real affinity for, for computers. A lot of, Litigators my age, uh, 20 years ago, thought that thought of them as black boxes, didn't understand them, avoided them when possible. But my um, um, work with computers over the decades really—they're just another tool to me, and and a fun one because they're so powerful. So I think that's had a great effect on my career. Um, as a litigator, as technology has become more and more important in litigation, uh, it is astounding the transformation in the practice of, of law and the practice of litigation that I've witnessed since I began at Sullivan in 1973. Uh, so it's it's been a great uh, bluebird, if you will, in, in my own career and in my own life. You told me an anecdote about um, the first time, I think you were, you were an associate at Sullivan and Cromwell, and the first time you saw a Lexus terminal, and your kind of, your reaction to that, your response to that, um, you know, maybe in some way these two worlds colliding, right? Your, your computing and computer science background combined with now, um, you know, the Bob Owens as a litigator at a top, top flight uh, Wall Street firm. Uh, what was your response to? Well, it's funny. With it, 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 it's funny, Anand, uh, that we didn't we didn't have any training in Lexis or Westlaw at the University of Pennsylvania Law School because they were the Lexis uh, wasn't in the law schools. Uh, neither was Westlaw. I think Westlaw came a year or two later, anyway. But when I got to Sullivan and Cromwell in the fall of 1973. At 48 Wall Street, I, I walked up to the library, and there's this small room off to one side. 
and it had this large desk, and in the middle of the desk was this tiny computer monitor. It was green on black, and it was a Lexus terminal. And so we got cursorily trained in, in Lexus. Um, to me and to all of us, it was miraculous because you could actually search legal opinions by judge's name. Um, and if you think back before the advent of, of computer uh, legal search, that wasn't possible. You, you would have to read all of the cases in all of the books and make careful lists of all of the decisions by a particular judge. But, but now we had this astounding ability to uh, say, oh, give me opinion by Weinfeld. And you would know within seconds what the judge had had said on particular topics. So, we just thought this was the bee's knees, and uh, it was a wonderful tool. Uh, obviously, uh, you know things like pocket parts and shepherds and all of those things that were the mainstay of library work for an associate back in the 70s are long gone. Uh, thank God. And uh, researching uh, is so radically different now and radically more efficient. Um, it's it's night and day. I have so many questions on the arrival of these Lexus terminals, but the first one I have though, on this this particular anecdote is: um, was there any pushback? I mean, did you did you hear from any you know senior partners at the time, maybe you know, senior librarians or others? who said, you know, this is going to turn these associates' minds into mush, right? You know, they need to hit the books like we did, um, and, and these conveniences are going to, um, you know, trivialize the importance of law or something like that. I'm clearly overstating it. But did you hear anything of that flavor back then? No. Um, you know, Sullivan was a, 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 a really great place in those years to spend my associate years. Um, they equipped themselves with every tool possible that, that would make them more efficient and more effective. You know, we had MTST word processors, um, and Videc, which was an Exxon subsidiary that for some reason made word processing equipment. But no, I, I don't recall that. It was just another tool. It was another way to get the result. Um, and it, that may have come later in life when people started to suggest that, you know, having resources like practical law or, um, you know, uh, other available online resources would, would in, induce associates to take shortcuts that, that back in the day they would never have been able to, but not at the time. I have to say the partners at Sullivan and Cromwell were, they were forward looking and, you know, they, they, they may have been having trouble dealing with the advent of women in law schools, but that's a different topic for another day. As far as the Lexus terminal, I think it was, this was another way to be good. You know, one of the things that struck me in a discussion that we had uh, maybe a week ago, Bob, is um, when you described the, the, quality of work that you got in the 70s as a Sullivan and Cromwell associate, even as a junior associate or a mid-level associate, five years out of school, three, seven years out of school. Um, can you describe to our listeners, and I think this is, this is um, something of a, a throwback to how I think law used to be practiced uh, in the 70s and how I think a lot of recent grads wish Law was practiced today, but certainly, uh, certainly it isn't. As I sit here in 2020, what was the kind of work that you handled at the firm um, a couple years out of school in the 70s? It was an extraordinary time to be an associate in litigation at Sullivan and Cromwell. The uh, litigation explosion had just occurred. There was lots of litigation. There were not very many litigation partners. At the time, the relationships between clients and law firms was the inverse of what it is now. The, the clients felt one down to us. They would send us the case and never ask any questions and pay the one-line bill at the end of the month for professional services rendered. It was, it was extraordinarily di different. And Sullivan had wonderful relationships with, with blue chip clients. 
Um, and we got everything that they had. And so there was this wonderful assortment of cases that uh, could be doled out to the associates. I actually tried four cases by myself as an associate at Sullivan and Cromwell between 1973 and 1981, and they weren't stupid cases. One was a short-form merger appraisal action in Delaware Chancery Court. Another was a shareholder derivative action where I defended the officers and directors of Commonwealth Oil, which was a Puerto Rican-based oil company, in uh, in New York Supreme, my my co-counsel on the case was the senior partner at Cravath. Uh, another case I tried involved the chock full of nuts store at the at the foot of Wall Street. I mean, it was just an incredible time to be there, and we were doing all this without much training. Uh, there was no such thing as trial advocacy training. Nita started in 1972, and I never had a chance to do that, although I ended up teaching there starting in 1988. But it was it was a real golden age. Um, I argued a Second Circuit appeal on behalf of Domino Sugar, and the partner sat in the back. I was up at the front by myself. So, um, you know, in the intervening years, the big firms have learned the, the profit secret of leverage and you know, cases now comprise 10 or 20 lawyers, but our biggest our biggest uh, case lawyer staff in the office was four lawyers, and that was a huge case. But, you know, things were different. The, there was no data set of millions or billions of pages of documents as there is now. Um, and the day I arrived at Sullivan and Cromwell, they treated me like a lawyer and sent me off to court, sent me off to take depositions. And, you know, it was <laughs> it was really an incredible experience, one that's no longer available anywhere, as far as I can tell, I, I think uh, that's for right. a whole lot of reasons. I, I think that's right. I, I love that. I love that story. I love that description of the work that you took on. Let's fast forward now all the way to uh, 2020 and talk about some of the things that you're uh, taking on at Eversheds. Um, one of the things that uh, I find very, very intriguing is that, um, you know, your, your co-global uh, chair of lit, a gentleman named Ron Sprajewski, asked you um, to really take the laboring oar and take the leadership on what he described as leading Eversheds to legal tech supremacy within the next two years. And I'm hoping I got all that correctly. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. That seems like a very ambitious initiative. Uh, first of all, did I get that right? And second of all, uh, you know, what does this uh, very large lofty initiative encompass? And what is your role at the firm in relation to that? Yeah, that's right, Anand. Um, Ron Sprajewski, and congratulations on getting his name pronunciation right. He's the head of U.S. litigation and co-head of litigation globally, uh, knows me to be a techie, and uh, asked me to uh, lead up what is called the Litigation Technology Working Group. Um, and we aim for litigation technology supremacy uh, in the next two years. Uh, it's a very ambitious goal, but Brian is very concerned about the future of the law practice given the advent of artificial intelligence and the advent of a lot of tools. Um, for example, your Compose, your, your Compose product uh, by Case Text is uh, a, a great product that will help to automate the drafting of briefs. And uh, this gives him agita because he, he doesn't want our lower levels of associates to be made irrelevant by the advent of technology. He's also convinced that clients more and more are expecting their sophisticated law firm partners to be uh, technically savvy and to have the latest and greatest tools, just as Sullivan and Cromwell did in the 1970s when I brought Lexus in. So uh, we, are, we are examining um, all of the available legal technologies, uh, we are um, uh, bringing many in-house, including your products, Care AI and, and the Compose, 
Uh, we want our lawyers to be as equipped as any litigator in the country with the, the best tools. Um, you know, it's a double-edged sword for big law because the more efficient you make the associates and the lawyers in their practice of law, the fewer billable hours they have. But the way the world is going, we expect that clients uh, will be at least as savvy as, as we are, and they'll know that if we don't have those tools, we're billing too many hours to these tasks. So um, it's a fascinating uh, job for me because it's an affinity of mine. I think I'm well-equipped to, to help identify good technologies, and I have a wonderful group. Uh, we meet every two weeks uh, for half an hour. We keep each other current on what we hear. The first thing I did uh, when we formed the group about six or eight months ago was I asked all of the, the lawyers on the group, especially the associates, to poll their law school cohorts and to hear from what other big law firms are using, thinking that, well, if some other firm has a good technological answer, let's just copy them and bring it in-house. And I was surprised at uh, how unsophisticated a lot of the other firms' technology was. So we may already be ahead uh, and, and uh, not really... We didn't know it at the time, but we, we have a good appreciation for for where the market is. Uh, but we nevertheless are pushing forward to be, you know, the best. And I'm proud to be part of that effort. I'm going to ask a question that, that may seem like it has an obvious answer, but I want to ask it nonetheless. Humor me. Let's say at the end of this two-year period, you achieve legal tax supremacy. And, and you know, obviously what that means is a is a big question, but uh, let's say you get all of the, the best technologies and um, you create a culture at Eversheds where all of those very, very good pieces of technology are used. Um, what is the end result of that? What do you expect to get out of uh, getting the best technology and having the attorneys at Eversheds and, and other professionals at Eversheds use the technology? Well, well, first of all, you expect to get better results because you're you're well equipped to uh, to achieve mastery of the facts and mastery of the law. So better results and, and better results for the clients is is the first goal. The second goal is a branding goal. We want to be recognized by clients as technologically sophisticated. As I said, you know, some clients are more further down this this path than others, but but I can tell you that the the major um, Fortune 10, Fortune 50 companies uh, they have the resources to assess uh, technology. They have the, the savvy to assess their law firms. And, you know, they will know that the uh, firms that are using the best technology are the most efficient and the most well-equipped to serve them and protect their interests at the lowest cost. And that's really the way the ARC of history has been bending over the last four decades. Uh, we are so much more efficient now than we were in the 1970s. Um, it's astounding how quickly we can do things now compared to when I started as a lawyer. Um, and that's not gonna change. Uh, and the lawyers that are, are not riding that arc of history uh, and they're going to be left behind. And I think Ron, it, keep, it keeps Ron awake at night, uh, worrying about uh, being displaced by technology or by firms that are more sophisticated in their use of technology. Bob, you mentioned branding, you know, and I, that very much resonates, I think, with a lot of our listeners. Um, you know, you, you get a lot of technology, you bring it on, you create this this culture of innovation at the firm, and that gets recognized, right? The, you know, your your associates uh, want to work at a firm like Eversheds because it's high tech. Um, you, you know, the, the folks who have been there 10, 15, 20 years know that they're going to be supported in this way. But, you know, even at a higher level than that, to what extent does Ron Sprajewski and you as a leader of this initiative 
see the brand of the firm, um, uh, you know, being high tech as a means of getting and and uh, keeping those Fortune 10 and Fortune 50 clients. To what extent do you talk about the technology that you've acquired and that you're using for clients? For example, in a client pitch, maybe in a, a, an annual review from a certain client, how often does it come up when you're actually interfacing with the guys who pay the bills? One of the um, things that Ron has emphasized, and I respect and I um, adhere to, uh, he wants our technology uh, to serve two, two goals. One is to make us more efficient and make us better lawyers, but he also wants us to uh, adopt technology that is client-facing, that shows the clients that uh, we are ahead of the curve, that gives them real-time access, for example, to our time entries, that gives them uh, seamless access to our uh, case management software and to the, uh, the HiQ platform for a particular case, for example. Um, it is very much a part of where we want our brand to be. You know, Sutherland, Asbill, and Brennan uh, is an Atlanta firm uh, at heart. It started in Atlanta. And I think it's not unfair to say that um, Sutherland um, has always been regarded as sort of a lawyer's law firm. You know, the smartest uh, lawyers go there. The you know when when a law firm needs to be represented by another law firm in Atlanta, they would they would think of Sutherland. Um, and it's one of the things that attracted me to the firm in 2011. Um, this is just another way for the Sutherland Legacy Firm, now Evershed Sutherland U.S., to continue that uh, that identification in the market and to continue that branding. Look, everything these days is all about differentiating yourself from the competition um, and being technologically ahead of the curve is, is a way to do that. How do you think uh, the COVID-19 pandemic affects that? Uh, obviously, you've got attorneys now who are working remotely. The firm relies on these attorneys <clears throat> working all over the country, likely all over the world. Um, you know, do you do you think that uh, you know the, the pandemic uh, is going to accelerate adoption of technology and give an, an even bigger edge to firms like Sutherland, Evershed Sutherland? who are adopting and deploying some of the, the newest newest technologies. I mean, I, I've heard anecdotally that there's some firms that are really struggling to go remote and other firms that are uh, doing it extremely seamlessly. And we're talking about big firms here. Um, you know, is, yeah. that, is that a trend that you're observing now? And uh, how do you think that's going to play out in the future? Well, uh, first of all, in defense of the big firms that are struggling, um, I learned when I was running my own 12-lawyer litigation boutique in Manhattan that it was a lot easier for us to turn on the technological dime than it was for the big firms um, <laughs> because the and the capital investment was tiny for us compared to what big law has to incur anytime it changes a platform or adds a technology. But um, as far as COVID-19 and its effect on the profession, uh, I absolutely think that it's going to be a watershed time uh, when people realize, you know what, we can be as effective as we are in the office um, and we can be at home. Or as, and I'm looking out at the ocean from my house in Maine right now and loving the absence of a commute and uh, an increased amount of time with my wife and my grandkids who were here with us sheltering in place. But I do, I do definitely think that this will lead to many changes. Our own firm, we had, uh, uh, before we all had shelter in place orders, we had run uh, experiments. We had everybody in the New York office 
sign on via VPN one evening just to see if we had the bandwidth. And uh, we did. Uh, and so we knew that no matter what was coming, we were going to be equipped to uh, to handle it. And um, I have to say with Zoom, or in our case, we use Ring Central. It's the same video conferencing technology, just uh, under a different brand. Uh, it's been incredible how how the meetings have been. They've been effective. Today, I recorded a, a video with three other people uh, talking about a, an artificial intelligence product that we're working on. Very exciting, speaking of technology, uh, to analyze foliation cases across 50 jurisdictions. But we were able to record it from our homes. And uh, I think that both we and law firm managers will understand going forward that we have a lot more flexibility to work from a lot of different locations um, than we understood six months ago. I want to delve into uh, what the you know what the nuts and bolts of legal tax supremacy means and what you're rolling out and you know feel free to talk about you know specific uh, companies specific uh, vendors that you're working with and and why you think their technologies are are good worthwhile etc a, a corollary to that is um, you know what is your approach as you march towards this legal tax supremacy is it to start with um, you know, some of the pain points the firm is experiencing and some of the problems that technology can cure at the firm? Or do you do you start it the other way around, namely, you know, uh, surveying the landscape and seeing what exceptional technology exists out there and then determining whether it could be a good fit at the firm? Uh, so it's kind of two questions. One is how you're how you're embarking on this, and the second is what are the nuts and bolts, you know, blocking and tackling kind of things you're doing to implement this this big initiative. Um, I think it's a good question, dude. It's two good questions. Um, I think uh, as to the first, it's not so much that we we know that we have pain points and we're trying to solve those pain points. You know, those were done in the normal course by our IT people and and um, uh, by by the firm's uh, administrative staff. But what I see our mission as doing is making sure that we know what's out there, uh, that we have made a good assessment of what's out there, and that we are seeking to bring in-house uh, the best of the best. And um, and so that's that's been a lot of fun for me because I get to exercise my techie muscles. Um, it's been fascinating. It, it also ties in perfectly with my role as president of the Electronic Discovery Institute because uh, our sponsors uh, come to Summit and they they you know acquaint us with their offerings. Uh, and so I have a lot of different ways of staying current on, you know, what the market is is uh, making available to law firms. You, it, as you know, you're one of them, um, and it's a there's an astounding array of initiatives. It's it's capitalism and and individualism at its best because everybody is you know their minds are just sparking these ideas and turning them into products and and bringing them to market it's it's fascinating to see so so vibrant so diverse and and so uh, just energetic compared to where the profession was 40 years ago in terms of specifics um we're working with FastCase, which, uh, you know, they started off as basically a legal research company. Um, you know, I think they sign a subscription agreements with state bar associations and so forth to provide inexpensive alternatives to Lexus and Westlaw. But their chief, their CEO, Ed Walters, uh, is really leading them into artificial intelligence in a big way. And we are working with them on a product that will um, automatically assess, it will automatically scan all new cases decided in state and federal court 
pull out those that discuss foliation, um, uh, extract the metadata from those uh, cases, assess whether the case was favorable or unfavorable to the producing party or the requesting party uh, in questions of spoliation, note whether the penalty was, uh, you know, just more discovery or whether it was costs or whether it was a default judgment, um, and produce a heat map of the 50 states. You know, we've had since 2015, Rule 37E at the federal level has nationalized the standards for spoliation and adverse inferences and whatnot, but we still have 50 different states and they all apply different standards uh, for the most part. And the purpose of this tool is to enable us and through us enable our clients to know you know, which states are worse on questions of, uh, of spoliation and which states aren't so that they can assess as part of their setting of case reserves, as part of their risk assessment right at the beginning of the case, you know, where that piece of the risk is. Is it is it a big piece of the risk in Indiana or is it a small piece of the risk in Indiana? So that it's been a very exciting project. We've been working with them. We've uh, collaborated with them, and and uh, that that's one technology that I'm I'm super excited about by name. The others, um, you know, I I think um, I, nothing comes to mind, but I know that the case management area um, is is much more sophisticated now. The the collaboration platforms we've brought. HiQ in, we're really following the international firm's lead on HiQ because I think it came out of the UK. But it's a really good platform allowing for immediate team collaboration, uh, immediate access to transcripts and annotations, immediate access to the produced documents and the notations that people have made all in one place. With respect to HiQ, we're, we're actually just in the early months of learning the platform. So uh, while I've used it myself, I haven't explored every possible advantage of using it, but I'm very encouraged and um, am, am pleased at the functionality that it uh, affords to, to me and my teams. Bob, why do you think this is all happening now? Uh, you know, you mentioned that this is a... Uh, you know, you might have said uh, golden age or, or something similar of technology targeting firms, right? This is maybe a intersection of capitalism and individualism, I think is, is close to what you said. Why do you think this is all happening now? I mean, you, you've, you've had a long career in law. You're sophisticated with respect to tech. Um, yet here you are seeing a lot of these exceptional tools all coming online and available for firms to to subscribe to uh, now. What's your theory on why that's the case? I mean, why didn't this happen, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago? Well, first of all, the technology is much more sophisticated now than it used to be. Um, you know, the the tech boom, the dot-com boom around the turn of the century um, happened when it happened. Uh, you know the the advances in computing uh, capacity, the advances in bandwidth, the advances in you know uh, computers with the uh, two, four, eight, sixteen cores. Um, you know it's much more powerful now. Number one, number two. Um, you know, small business. Uh, is at really at the heart of uh, the American economy. And uh, taking my three children as an example, none of them work for big corporations. They're all working for smaller companies and startups. Uh, that's where the excitement is for kids. My kids all had cubicle jobs during their summers, but they ended up rejecting that course, rejecting big corporations and, and going off in, in smaller uh, in smaller venues, and I just think it feeds the soul to be part of a, a new venture or a new idea or building something. And I think the confluence of technological power 
and the uh, the push by millennials to chart their own course uh, has led us to this place. And also, look, the other factor is uh, e-discovery has become 50% or more of the cost of every case um, and 50% or more of the risk in every litigation. There's a lot of money to be made when it comes to uh, legal support technology. And, uh, and I think that's a third element of the formula that has led us to where we are. I mean, excellent companies like yours, Anand, uh, just came up out of nowhere out of the, you know, in the last five or 10 years. And uh, you're a perfect example of what you're asking about. Well, I, I appreciate that, Bob. Um, you know, I, I want to get to um, a question about the, the future uh, and your sense on pretrial disclosure and how uh, a lot of a lot of discovery and as a result, e-discovery is inefficient and maybe bad for litigation. I think you refer to it as the litigation industry, you know, uh, somewhat pejoratively. Uh, I'd love to I'd love to get into that. The, the, but first, you know, one of the things you said really stuck out, and um, you know, you you juxtapose the era in the '70s where you would uh, do work for a client and give them a bill at the end of the month and it'd have a dollar amount on it and it'd say for professional services rendered and they would put their head down and, and write you a check and you know, you're know you on to the next month. Uh, no formalized billing, no haggling back and forth, no flat fees. It was just kind of done on trust. Granted, this was at Sullivan and Cromwell. I, unclear whether whether all firms were like this. Maybe maybe just some top flight ones. But then you know, towards uh, you know, w when you started getting to the 2010s and, and certainly now in 2020, you you referred to a, sh a shift in power where clients are more savvy, clients are more in the driver's seat with respect to exactly how litigation happens and who, you know which firms get the work and um, presumably more competition there. What happened from, from, you know, obviously this is a very big question, but what happened from the early to mid-70s where a, chat, a bill for services rendered was acceptable in the norm to 2020? when that would is most certainly not the norm. Uh, where was the shift and what were the steps that took place based on your perspective, seeing all of this unfold? Well, I, I think that um, a couple of things happened. First of all, billable rates skyrocketed compared to where they were in the 70s. Um, the profitability of law firms skyrocketed compared to, compared to where they were. And I think a lot of CFOs in American companies said, wait a second, look at this line item for legal services. We need to bring that down. So in-house staffs uh, increased. Um, and what's their job? Their job is to uh, oversee and minimize legal spend. Uh, I, 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 we, we were, the, the, the Amstar matter, the, Domino Sugar Matter, for example, they had no in-house legal department in the 1970s. They refined, what, 70% of the sugar in America, and they had no in-house lawyers. I guarantee you that's not the case now. Um, I, I represented a major manufacturer of uh, condoms and intrauterine devices, and I was their outside general counsel as a fifth-year associate. They had no in-house legal staff. I guarantee you that's not the same now, um, in part because there's so many lawyers, in part because legal uh, billing rates went up and the CFOs started clamping down, and in part just because it makes sense. You know, um, firms uh, that work by the hour have an unlimited discretion to just write down time and get paid for it. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And uh, some lawyers abuse that, some don't. Some are professional about it, but some, you know, will write down two hours when they did one hour of work. Um, these things all inexorably led to where we are now, which is a lot of competition, a lot of uh, oversight, a lot of auditing of our bills, 
you know, it's a very different world in in that way from uh, where it was in the 1970s. Um, and when did that happen? I think that happened gradually, but inexorably, and it certainly uh, was happening by the late 80s, early 90s, and, and uh, it's just been uh, continuing apace ever since then. I, I love that. I love that answer. I love that perspective, Bob. Um, let's look to the future now. Um, my question is, where do you think we're going to be with respect to litigation, uh, generally the legal industry, but more specifically litigation in 20 years? And how does uh, your conception of pretrial disclosures and abuses of, of pretrial disclosures and the litigation industry play into that? Um, look, um, until 1938 uh, in the United States of America, there was no such thing as pretrial disclosure. And in 1938, the federal rules were adopted, um, and it, they embodied the philosophy of full pretrial disclosure. And this was a time when most case files probably fit in three or four file folders, let alone bankers' boxes. So the pretrial disclosure aspect of of federal litigation starting in 1938 was, you know, uh, an hour at the client. You were pulling file folders out of the client's uh, file department or the officer's office, putting them on a conference room table and displaying them to the other side. They would paper clip. Uh, the pages they wanted copied, you'd send them a bill for the amount of the copied charges, and that was discovery. But now we have multitudes of sources of data. We've got massive volumes. Uh, we have irrelevant information living literally next door to relevant information in, in people's C drives and network shares. Uh, and in structured databases. And so, you know, it's a, it's a very different time. I see it as fundamentally a mismatch between the philosophy of full pretrial disclosure and the amount and complexity of data that now is arguably relevant to, to any case. We're the only country on earth that pursues full pretrial disclosure and who's to say we have it right? You know, it's a preponderance of the evidence civil system. It's not, uh, you know, a certain system or beyond a reasonable doubt. It's 5149. And so why are we spending so much money to uh, turn over every last stone? Uh, and how many outcomes are we affect really changing by that massive expenditure of money. I would bet you that we could get by with 20% of the e-discovery cost, um, and we wouldn't change many, if any, litigation outcomes. So what does the future hold? Um, one of the tragedies that I've seen is the disappearance of the middle class from the federal courts, um, because you know most mom-and-pop companies can't get their arms around the technological requirements of, of responding to discovery requests and litigation holds and, you know, harvesting data off of people's C drives or, or whatever, not to mention social media. Um, I think the future uh, it, it will take one of two courses, maybe one of three. Uh, first, uh, and I think this is probably the most likely at some point, uh, people will just throw up their hands and say, oh, my gosh, this is too complex. It's not worth it. And we will have uh, a Republican president and a Republican Congress, and they will say, we're just going to adopt the pick of the country, the British system, where you produce litigation bundles, trial bundles before the, the case. You have limited discovery. You go to trial, and you live with the results. You know, it doesn't sound very good. But my gosh, the money we are spending to run down every last fact is is just daunting. And as long as we're a rich country, I suppose we can afford it. But we are forcing the middle class out of the courts. 
And so that's one path. Another path is that the technology will become so sophisticated that it'll be it'll be able to harvest all the data and organize the data and produce effectively those bundles that I spoke of uh, automatically. So you won't have the squadrons of kids in cubicles reviewing documents. You won't have the 20 and 30 lawyer litigation teams managing this. Um, and then the third way uh, that we could possibly develop is, you know, maybe an arbitration association comes along and they they do what I think none of the arbitral associations did very well, and I think they all missed the boat, uh, is to say, okay, you agree to arbitrate in, in front of but the uh, the case text ever sheds uh, arbitral forum. You get e-discovery light. This is what you get. You don't get anything more, and you go to trial. In other words, there will be a conscious truncation of full disclosure in return for cheaper and faster results. Arbitration was always cheaper and faster, supposedly. Now it's just as expensive, and it's just as, as long as traditional litigation, and you don't get an appeal, and you have to pay the arbitrator. So I, th those are three possibilities, Anand. I wish I knew which course we will take. I guess the fourth possibility is we'll just continue to muddle on, and legal tech in New York will occupy another 10 floors of the New York Hilton with booths of vendors marketing their wares. But I hope for the sake of our country as a citizen that we come up with a better solution than just making litigation even more complex and even more expensive than it has become. I, I really appreciate that answer, Bob. Um, I think that was very sweeping and it, it uh, it highlights a lot of the um, inefficiencies right now and a lot of the, I think, unintended consequences of um, the amount of data that we create and the amount of data that large companies create that then becomes discoverable. Certainly uh, couldn't have thought of that in 1938, but that's very much the world we live in. And I think that's one reason why a lot of these legal tech conferences, as you well know, Bob, uh, are disproportionately e-discovery focused, right? I mean, that's kind of the the technology right. that has uh, uh, e you know eaten uh, a, a large share of the pie. Uh, that's fascinating, Bob. I, let's let's uh, wrap right there. I know uh, you're a busy man, and I really appreciate you spending your time with us. I think our listeners are going to love this this very um, you know broad conversation. So, so Bob, thank you so much for joining us, talking about what you're working on and uh, your your impressive career. Well, thanks, Anand. It's uh, been a pleasure. I've appreciated the opportunity, and I hope that uh, a few people find it to be valuable. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you, and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag modernlawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.